Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Tuesday, March the 14th, 2023. As always, I'm talking to you from the West Coast of the United States, from San Francisco. And my quest, as regular viewers and listeners know, is to make sense of America. I think there are two keys to America. I know this is a bit facile, but I'm afraid I'm a rather facile fellow. Uh, the first, of course, is race, which we talked about and will continue to talk about in many different forms. The second is religion. This was brought home to me um, the last few months. Uh, I did a show with Catherine Stewart, um, who's written a series of books and articles on the rise in her view of American religious nationalism. Her book is called the power worshippers inside the dangerous rise of religious nationalism. I'm not entirely convinced by Catherine's um, rather dark vision, but there's certainly some truth to it. And then earlier today, I talked to another journalist who covers religion in America, the Catholic journalist Mary Jo McConaughey, who has a new book out, Playing God, American Catholic Bishops and the Far Right. It was a very interesting conversation. And what it suggested to me is that the most interesting conversations perhaps in America are taking place within these religious traditions, particularly in the Catholic tradition amongst or between, um, I guess you would call them liberal Catholics like McConaughey and the more conservative establishment Catholic bishops. One man who understands American politics and religion as well as anyone is my guest today, uh, Peter Weiner. Uh, he's one of the most, uh, I think, important, perceptive and moral writers in America on both its politics and its religion and the way in which the two have got mixed up together. He writes for The Atlantic and for The New York Times. He's also the author of a number of very important books, the last of which was The Death of Politics, How to Heal Our Fractured Republic After Trump, which I think is a book in some ways about America's descent into religious sectarianism and how we can escape it. Much of his work focuses on politics and some of it on religion. Um, he had a wonderful piece just, uh, just before Christmas last year in the New York Times on why Jesus loved friendship. His last piece, though, in, Atlant in the Atlantic, which came out a few days ago on March 13th, seems to me to be profound, both knowingly and unknowingly, about the continual phenomenon of Donald Trump, the political, the religious, and the violent phenomenon of Donald Trump. The, the article is entitled, Vengeance is Trump's, and uh, Pete suggests that the former president is threatening retribution. And what we need instead, he suggests, is forbearance, vengeance, retribution, forbearance. These are all deeply religious words. And I think what Pete is suggesting is that the really interesting conversation within America today is amongst Christians of one kind or another, um, who are borrowing language for from the tradition to make sense of America. 
Uh, Pete, welcome. As always, he's joining us from McLean, Virginia, where he lives. He's a fellow at the Trinity Forum, but um, he is in many ways, I think, the conscience of America, or at least the conscience of religious America. Pete, is there any truth to this idea that the really interesting conversations consciously or otherwise are taking place amongst religious Americans? Yeah, I, I think there is. Uh, first, thanks for having me on. It's always a, a delight to, to have the conversations are always meaningful and, and rich with you. Um, yeah, I think that some of the most important conversations are intra-religious, inter-Christian. I don't think it's exclusive to that. Um, and, um, and America itself is, is less Christian and less religious than it has been in the, in the past. But I think there is a very vigorous and to some extent, I would say, in some quarters, heated um, debate about, about what religious faith is, its implications when it comes to American society, uh, the, the ways in which uh, faith uh, and uh, and politics intersect, uh, the ways that they that they shouldn't. How does one uh, who's in my case, person of the Christian faith, uh, follow their faith with with fidelity, with with uh, with faithfulness? Um, even a lot of people, Andrew, this is kind of interesting to me that doctrinally are are aligned, say in the sort of Protestant Orthodox tradition. The way that that plays out in terms of people's views on culture, on politics and so forth can be profoundly different. So it's not necessarily doctrinal differences, although some of that ha happens and, and, and is occurring. But even within people who more or less share the same doctrine, there are some deep uh, and, and profound differences. And I find that uh, an interesting phenomenon worth reflecting on. Uh, your, your piece about Trump and his vengeance uh, is taken from his remarks at CPAC earlier this month. Um, and like you, uh, Maggie Haberman, the New York Times is in Shane Goldmacher, uh, also focused on, on what Trump told the audience there. Uh, Trump said in 2016, I declared, I am your voice. Today, I add, I am your warrior. I am your justice. And for those who have been wronged and betrayed, I am your retribution. I am your retribution. This is the language very much of the Old Testament, isn't it, Pete? It is. Uh, it, it, it is. And it's very much the language of many people uh, on the American right and conservative Christians. Um, there is a feeling... Uh, you know, I'll say this about Donald Trump, and, and I think he is in many ways a broken and psychologically deranged person, believing really early on with him as early as 2015 that, that he was uh, dealing with variations of psychosis and narcissistic personality disorder. Um, but he does have uh, a remarkable instinct for what the, uh, the mood and the impulses and the sentiments and the, and the dispositions of the base of the Republican Party uh, is. And I think that he tapped into the grievances, the sense of being wronged, uh, the sense of being betrayed, which he, which he used in that quote. And he really positioned himself as, as, as the person who would avenge uh, those, uh, those, those feelings and would attack uh, the perceived enemies of, of his followers. And that created an extraordinary bond between Trump uh, and his followers, and ended up giving him a tremendous amount of latitude to do things that would have been once unspeakable for any American 
president or any American political leader, really, to to do. And yet he did them and most of the base stayed with him. Um, and that can only be explained through, I think, the prism of psychology and human emotions, not through not through reason, not through policy commitments. So it seems to me the the key question, it's almost perhaps an existential question, is whether or not this language is meant literally. Um, he also said uh, this is the final battle. Uh, they know it. I know it. You know it. Everyone knows it. This is it. Either they win or we win. And if they win, we are no longer have a country. Okay. It's very much the language of Hollywood, the language of these monster films that are seem to dominate the cinema these days. Trump himself is, of course, a creation of American television and of what we might think of as the television industrial complex. Is this all metaphor, Pete, or is this real? Or, or, or are we on the dangerous precipice where people have lost any distinction between metaphor and reality? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I, I do think that a lot of people have lost the distinction. The degree to which uh, people in American life today, particularly in, in our uh, political uh, life, um, uh, are living in a world of, of, uh, that's detached from reality, that's, that's uh, filled with conspiracy theories, is really quite striking and quite, quite, quite alarming. In terms of whether it's metaphor reality, in terms of when Trump says it, and, and whether how the people who follow him hear it, um, I would say, obviously, facts and circumstances, individuals will hear it in, in different different ways. But I think for a lot of them, it is, it's, it's, it is reality. Uh, they feel I've had enough conversations with, with people who are uh, supporters of Trump and part of MAGA world and really part of the base of the Republican party. And if you allow them to talk and to be open in terms of their, 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 their feelings, their, their, their sentiments, um, they believe we're in an existential crisis. Um, that uh, that if they lose any particular culture war issue or an election, that the country will drop off of a cliff and really so much of what they've known and loved and cherished about America will um, will, will be gone, will die. And then they, the, uh, compounding that is a, a sense of the threat to them, their way of life, their, often their children. And um, that's not to say that there are, aren't real issues and real problems and real threats that exist, but that's always true, right? I mean, that's what human life is about. That's what politics is about, important issues, having debates, and the outcome of those debates matter in terms of shaping the course of human events. But that's different than feeling this is an existential challenge uh, in which uh, everything lives or dies by the outcome of, uh, of a particular election or having a particular leader. And for a lot of people on the American right in the MAGA movement, they do believe that, uh, that uh, th this is the nature of the battle. It is, in a, in a way, a final, a, a final battle. And they view Donald Trump as giving voice to those views, and they consider him their warrior, their fighter, who will fight for what they believe and vanquish the people that they have come to hate. This a, a, a apocalyptic, hist historiographical yeah. um, narrative of American history, world history, and history of the humankind 
is very much bound up in, in American history, too. In your excellent piece, um, Vengeance in Trump's in the Atlantic earlier this week, you mentioned a conversation you had with my Berkeley neighbor, Arlie Hothschild, uh, one of America's leading sociologists, in fact, going over to her house uh, at the weekend to interview uh, Adam Hothschild, her, her husband, another very important journalist and writer. Arlie Hothschild went to the South to write a book about sociology from Berkeley, about the other America. What, what, how can Arlie, who is about as open-minded uh, a progressive in Berkeley as you could possibly find, what can, how can Arlie's sociology help us make sense of this predicament, Pete, and figure out a way out of it before we do indeed get to this final battle? Yeah, it's, she, she's terrific. And um, the context was that I was on a panel session with her at Sanford just right before the 2016 election. And when I was having a, a conversation with her, um, because she had spent uh, five years in Louisiana, sort of the heart of the Bayou country. And at that point, the movement that she was analyzing was the Tea Party movement, which is a kind of uh, predated the, the MAGA movement. But Tap, but the but but that movement had many of the the problems that we just have associated with 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 the MAGA movement, and um, what she told me uh, in a conversation that we had is she said, Pete, the thing that you need to understand about these people um, is that they feel dishonored and disrespected and humiliated, um, and that was an essential thing to understand about what was motivating them. Um, and what drove their, their actions. Um, and any time that you get people who feel dishonored and disrespected and humiliated, that can catalyze a whole series of negative and even dangerous emotions. And what, uh, what she helped me understand is that that was how a lot of Trump supporters, again, Tea Party supporters who had morphed into the sort of MAGA world, what they were feeling. And that seemed to me to be extremely important because a lot of times in politics, you have debates about issues and public policy, and that matters a lot. But often politics isn't about public policy as much as it is about what's visceral to people um, and the emotions that, uh, that, that exist. And uh, you have to understand that and appreciate them um, to to try and make sense of the moment that you're in and to try and, in our case, heal from, from the divisions, the antipathy, the vituperation that, that, uh, that now characterizes American, American politics. So I was grateful to have heard from her and, and her book itself. Uh, the subtitle is, uh, I think, Anger and Mourning on the American Right. And, and that was a very keen insight to understand and help me to understand better than I did uh, what this Trumpian moment was about. In a way, then, perhaps the forbearance that you talk about in your Atlantic piece could equally be applied to progressives in Berkeley, San Francisco, Washington, D.C. Yep. We, of course, famously remember Hillary Clinton writing off 40 or 50 percent of Americans as deplorables. Do you think, and we, I mean, Peter, I'm speaking on behalf of the left side of the American spectrum. Do we need to do a better job making sense of, of Ali Hothschild's world? I think we do. I think we do. I think all of us could do better, including myself, at forbearance for people 
with whom we disagree. I think the human instinct is to try and create uh, cartoon images um, and, uh, and, and caricatures of, uh, of people. And often to make the jump from saying, look, we have a policy disagreement or a political difference and using that as a, as a referendum on people's character. Uh, that somehow if, if, if you hold the wrong views from, from, from one's perspective, that that somehow is an insight into whether a person is moral or immoral. And that's just a danger that exists. Now, it doesn't mean that, that at, at some point people can't hold uh, political views or support political parties or movements that are themselves immoral. And then there's the question of the complicity that one has as an individual. I think that's a, that's a really important question. And I don't pretend that that's one that you can set, you, you can set aside. But I think that the reflex is often to depersonalize, dehumanize the, the, the folks with which we uh, with whom we dis disagree. Look, I think the American left has has its own variation of this problem. I think it's more pronounced in the American right today than the American left. The the bitterness, the resentment, the hatred, the violence, the political violence. And I think that's a simple way to think about it is look at the leaders of the party the, and the two presidents, Joe Biden, uh, now currently Democratic, the last Republican president, Donald Trump. Whatever your problems with 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 Joe Biden, and he's far from perfect, he embodies a very, very different view of of uh, of politics and he is, I think, fundamentally a decent man, and Donald Trump is fundamentally an indecent man. And Biden is trying to bring the country together, even if imperfectly, whereas Trump was committed to driving it, driving it apart. But I do think also in terms of how we get out of this situation that we're in, part of it is for greater forbearance, um, again, from all of us, but also from from Democrats and the American left to understand what grievances the people on the right and Trump supporters might have had um, and to listen to them and to listen to them well and to listen to their stories and to have some some toleration for for that. It doesn't mean that at the end of the day, you can't be critical of the decisions they make or the votes that they cast. But people, by and large, just tend to be more complicated than we think. And I just think that it's an important thing to be able to try and um, and understand how they have arrived at the place that 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 they did. And I think that's important in politics. I think it's important in faith. I think it's important in in other ways. The other thing I'll say, Andrew, just in my own conversations with people is how important it is when you're having a discussion with someone you disagree with that they feel heard, that they feel listened to, that they don't feel under attack, that they don't feel that they're being, um, we use a word we, we, we referred to earlier, dishonored, uh, and that they're not the object of contempt. When you feel that as a person, um, you're not gonna change your mind and you're going to lash out, you're gonna lash back. And I think part of what we have to do is to turn the temperature down. And part of what turning the temperature down means respecting people and the way you respect people uh, is, is, is to have a genuine sense that these are human beings who are complicated and have their own stories. And those stories need to be heard and listened to and taken into account. Pete, what was it in the Bible about Caesar and politics? You, you know this book as well as anyone. What was the quote about Caesar and politics? Yeah, give unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God. And, 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 and have uh, we got it? And you seem to suggest this in, in your book, Death of Politics. 
Have we got it entirely wrong? Um, the religious politics has become sectarian in a religious sense, and yet there's an absence of formal religious language. Meanwhile, there's a spiritual vacuum in the country. Is that one of the problems that we've, we're losing simultaneously any sense of what Tocquevillian politics, civic politics is supposed to be about, but we're also fleeing from traditional religion? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a really deep point. Um, I think a lot of things are happening at once. I, I do think that there's a spiritual vacuum um, at, at the heart of our politics and in much of American life today. Um, and I think when there is this kind of spiritual vacuum, it opens things up that can go in a very dangerous direction. So I think that's a fair point. And often when a spiritual a vacuum is created by uh, a, a breakdown of religious faith, authentic religious faith. Um, I do think that the role of religion in politics is complicated because I would say right now, by and large, in the main, net-net, religion is a negative force in American politics. And again, I say that as a person of the Christian faith and who has defended the role of religion in politics, you know, for much of my professional life and my adult life. And, and the reason I've defended that is because um, I think religion at its best can be a piston of justice. It can be an instrument of justice. And there are moments in American history from, from, from the abolitionist movement to the civil rights movement to many others where religion was sort of a driving force to make American society more decent and more just. And I would say that there is a kind of human anthropology at the core of authentic religious faith, which believes that people have inherent human dignity um, and they need to be treated uh, in, in ways that are sort of natural rights. That is, rights that inhere in human beings simply because they're human beings, not because they're gifts of the state. Uh, and uh, so the, the, uh, there are examples of that happening. At the same time, um, religion, when it's interjected into politics, can be a force for real destruction. Um, it can create rigidity and judgmentalism. Um, and uh, apocalyptic thinking, um, and it can uh, it, it can conjoin with some very dangerous movements like the white nationalist movement, you know, the Christian national so-called Christian nationalist movement. And uh, we've seen throughout history religion used as an instrument of oppression and and hatred. Um, now I think that that's a distortion of authentic religious faith. But it's happened enough that you have to be alert to. And the other thing I'll say, Andrew, which is, in my experience, important to, to appreciate, which is politics is loaded enough and just in terms of the intensity and the passions. And again, for understandable reasons, because politics is about an important stuff and statecraft is soulcraft, uh, as, as it's been said. But when you overlay that, that passion with politics with a passion of religious faith as well, you can very quickly and very easily escalate things. And so the normal passions of politics uh, are injected sort of passions of politics on steroids. And, uh, and if you believe that you are uh, the instrument of God's doing and that if you prevail, God's will prevails, 
And if you're defeated, God is defeated. That just adds elements to politics, which makes it very explosive. Um, compromise becomes much more difficult. Any political things like political violence can become more justified because you feel like you're advocating for causes which are supremely just and may even you need to resort to to uh, to violence to 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 pursue that agenda. So I just think it's a really tricky terrain. Uh, when you get it right, it can be good in terms of faith and politics. And when you get it wrong, it can be really, really bad. Can we turn the the, the Caesar quote on its head rather than returning to Caesar? What is Caesar's? We return to religion. What is religious when it comes to language? Your 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 wonderful piece focuses on three words, retribution, forbearance, and vengeance, all, of course, deeply religious words, although they're also human words. I mean, I'm sure there was vengeance before there was the Old Testament, and before there was any sense of God or monotheism. But do we need to rediscover the language of religion? And perhaps you, you, you note in your piece uh, Abraham Lincoln, and his central role in the politics of forbearance uh, during the American Civil War. Do we need someone like Lincoln who can stand both simultaneously inside and outside the Republic and the formal religious establishments to do this? Yeah, I'll take those in reverse order. Uh, in terms of do we need somebody you know like a Lincoln? I mean, the answer to that is always yes. Um, in my estimation, Lincoln was the greatest person this country has ever produced, the greatest president that we've ever that we've ever had. Um, just an extraordinary combination of of, of uh, virtues and qualities. Um, he was a individual who grew uh, throughout his office, saw things uh, better uh, as he got older, um, an unbelievable gift with, with, with the English language, but language used to convey very deep um, human um, sentiments um, and, and, and virtues. Um, a person who prosecuted the bloodiest war in our histories you know, civil war, 700,000 dead in a country of 31 million. Um, and yet, as, as the quote that I had from the biography in Lincoln from Laura Charnwood, uh, which was written in 1917, uh, that this most unrelenting enemy um, of, uh, of the project of the Confederacy was the one man who quite purged his heart and mind from hatred or even anger towards his fellow countrymen um, of the South. And that capacity to both fight for justice, stand for justice, give voice to justice, and not get pulled into hatred and vengeance and retribution, and even to have forbearance and, and, and sympathy for the American South where it was due and also in the project of healing the country was just unbelievable. And he came at just, just the right time whether he was a providential figure, I don't know, uh, but he's as close to providential as, as we had. But there was only one Lincoln, and there'll always only be one Lincoln, and everybody else is going to fall short of that standard. The question is whether we produce the kind of, of political figures and the kind of political leaders who aspire toward Lincolnian sentiments. Um, and 
And right now, uh, you know, the, the country is largely devoid of, of that. In terms of rediscovering the language of religion, because you're quite right, the language of vengeance and retribution and justice and forbearance are religious words, not simply religious words, but they're, they really are central to, to, to uh, faith itself. I say, yeah, we, we do need that language, but mostly we need the meaning uh, of the of those words and language itself has to be has to convey deep things of the human heart things that we hold as dear that we cherish um, and that we will protect don't we need to return these this is almost as if these words have escaped yeah their natural home and yeah. they're, they're they they're completely out of place in political life and we need to figure out a way to take them back to where they belong. It's almost like a, you know, the the uh, the Lord a, a Lord of the Rings kind of parable where we have to return language to where it naturally resides. I think that's right. I think you know the the, the corruption of language, the pollution of language, is really important um, because language matters. Everybody knows language matters. Words matter. You think about words from a loved one in a note you think of lyrics in a song you think of words in poems um you think of of the words in hymns um you know th there's a reason that those things resonate with us because they express things that touch very very deeply and when you corrupt words i mean orwell wrote about about this yeah poem, i mean so. we we talk about orwell's essay on the english language almost every show it comes up yeah all the time. i'm sure and everyone's that. responsible it's not you can't just blame trump or QAnon no. or marjorie taylor green it's our advertising community it's hollywood it's politicians both on the left and the right they're all abusers of language yeah no i think that's i think that's right and they're all look they're always it's just the human experience people have always abused language People but is that coming back to Lincoln, we can talk about him as a remarkable man. But as you suggest, what was most remarkable about him, and this is where I think we could contrast him quite vividly with Joe Biden, was his use of language. Yes. Yeah. It, it, there's there's no question. I mean, uh, the, the two greatest political orators, in, in my estimation, were Lincoln and Churchill. And, and they both marshaled the language uh, toward great causes. And and it just showed that the, that the capacity of words to move nations and to move human hearts and to move and to move people. And I think reclaiming language is a really big deal. You know, in that essay, I, I, I used words of I quoted from a Solzhenitsyn, his Nobel Prize speech. In right. On ancient. Uh, yeah, I pulled that as well. The uh, ancient, ancient trinity of truthy of of, uh, of ancient trinity of truth, beauty, and goodness. It was his Nobel Prize speech. Yeah, yeah, and you just think about even those words, truth, beauty, and goodness, seem almost antiquated in current American politics, and that's not a good thing um, because truth and beauty and goodness and forbearance, as we were talking about earlier, those things matter um, because they convey uh, something. Again, the words themselves. Uh, aren't solely enough. They have to really be connected to to real dispositions, real sentiments, real action. But they matter a lot, and we have to care and tend to our words. Yeah, and you mourned your friend Michael Gerson, one of the great wordsmiths, uh, perhaps a conservative one, but nonetheless a very honest one, is one of the 
the callings that is in crisis. Uh, political speech writers, Pete, I mean, you, you used to be in the, I don't know if you wrote speeches, but I know you worked in several Republican administrations. How do we get our responsible young people, both on the left and right, back into politics? The wordsmiths, the people able to put speeches and ideas together. Well, I think part of it is to recapture what the meaning and importance of politics is. And I think too, too many politicians themselves have given up on that enterprise. They, they, they view politics cynically. They act as if politics is cynical. And the, the elements of politics, which is noble and uplifting as a human enterprise, is almost never talked about. Um, and look, politics is complicated and there's a downside to it. and There's a dark side to it. But it's also at its core, at its essence, a noble profession because it's about the pursuit of justice, even if it's an, even if it's often imperfect. I think part of it is just to be able to get the people who, who who practice the art, the enterprise, the profession to begin to talk about it in in a in a in a way that that elevates people's sights and imaginations, um, and then to try and get people who hopefully stand up for principle to become models, I would say, in the Republican Party, Liz Cheney stood for that, even though she was excoriated by Donald Trump and much of the MAGA movement. This is a person who's very, very conservative and obviously, in my estimation, put her, her country ahead of her party and spoke truth and spoke it powerfully and spoke it often beautifully uh, about the rule of law and the Constitution um, and American ideals. And I think that that inspired a lot of people. It upset a lot of people, too. Um, that's the nature of these these kinds of kinds of debates. Um, but that's what what we need. And I think wordsmiths, you've got to you got to aim high. You can't aim low. And you 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 want to try and elevate people's um, emotions and and uh, and passions and channel them in a constructive way, whereas way too often, especially now, more now than in any time in, in my lifetime in politics, people are using words uh, to, to pull them down, uh, and to denigrate others and to, and to degrade themselves and to degrade words. Um, all of that was within our power to change. I mean, mm -hmm. we're not, we're not corks on an ocean. This is a self-governing country. We have the capacity to shape, uh, history, to write wonderful chapters in the American story if we choose to. Um, but, but that requires will, it requires commitment. It requires perseverance. Uh, and it requires us to have a commitment to to uh, that ancient trinity of truth and beauty and goodness. Finally, Pete, how long have we got here? I mean, Trump is talking about the final battle, says he's your warrior, talking about vengeance. Uh, you respond in a conventional Christian way, trying to bring the words back. But you seem rather pessimistic. You You wrote a piece for The New York Times last year about whether Christian America can withstand the pull of QAnon. I think you were hopeful, but not certainly positive. Uh, you write about Marjorie Taylor Greene's civil war and how she's way too influential within the GOP. I'm not quite sure how to make sense of her in religious terms. I'm sure there's a, an MTG equivalent in the Old or New Testament. How long have we got? I mean, if Trump does indeed get nominated, which seems reasonably likely, given DeSantis's unproven record, what happens? 
Well, I think a lot depends on whether he becomes president again. If Trump were to become president again, uh, that would be a perilous moment uh, for, for the country. Um, and I'm not sure how well we Wouldn't can... it be perilous even if he's nominated? Yeah. Yeah. It just would be less perilous. Um, I, I, if he's a nominee but not president, that's a big problem. But being president is a much bigger problem. Um, and um, look, if he's a nominee of the party, it's a clear indication that the Republican Party uh, has decided to stay in a Trumpian MAGA direction. And it's important to say, Andrea, that Trump today and the MAGA movement today is more radicalized, more deranged, more twins to conspiracy theories than ever before. Um, and it is a more dangerous movement and he's a more dangerous individual uh, than, than he was in the past. So if that person, given his record, wins the nomination of the Republican Party. It means that one of the two major parties in American politics, one of the two most important parties in the world, uh, is under the control of a lunatic, essentially. And that it has jettisoned not just any moral commitments, but it's become nihilistic at its, at its, at its core. That's a huge danger. On the other hand, if the country, enough of the country rises up as it did in 2020 and says, no, we're not going there. And in the midterm election in 2022, uh, almost to a person rejected the worst uh, candidates from the MAGA world, QAnon world, and said, no, that's a good sign that that means that the virus has created some of its own antibodies the so-called exhausted majority, exhausted by the, the polarization, the hatred, the lunacy, the kind of freak show that politics has become, that they're willing to stand up. Um, some number of people are going to be with Trump no matter what he does. We've, we've, we've seen that. We see it now with Fox News, which has been revealed empirically, demonstrably, to be just a propaganda machine, um, f telling lies that that everyone from, well, from their entire lineup virtually knew to be lies. And yet the people continue to tune in. That's not going to change overnight. The question is, can it be contained? Can these people be kept from power? And over time, can you begin to break some of them away and bring them back to more normal politics? I think the answer is yes. It's not predetermined that it happens. And life is contingent and it can take a lot of different directions and it could go in a, in a worse direction. I would say right now, the odds of Donald Trump being president again are not very good. Um, I think too much of the country uh, just considers him uh, dangerous and and um, and a loser. Um, but if he's the nominee, then he's got a he's got a fighting chance. And if he happens to win, uh, then a tremendous amount of damage could be done. And even if he loses the election but goes through this this drama again, where he says it was rigged, uh, you know, that, that can be a, be a flame, uh, to, to light a conflagration. And, um, could be that we look back to what happened on January 6th and the uh, insurrection and the assault on the Capitol and think, well, that was, that was a walk in the park compared to what we see. I hope that's not the case. I'm not predicting it's the case, but it's a danger. And that's why people of good conscience and goodwill have to stand up and have to speak, and they have to name this moment, and they have to fight for what's good and right and just. Because if you don't do it, uh, then a lot of really um, dark and, 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 and awful things can happen, including in America. And, um, and that, that shouldn't happen, and what happens to America matters 
not just to this country, but to the world. And um, people need to uh, need to let their voices be be uh, be heard. That's what the, the nature of citizenship is in a free country. Finally, Pete, um, I don't want to lecture you about moral responsibility of all people. I'm, I, I, I have no right to, especially I have no right to, to lecture anyone on moral responsibility. But I, could one make the argument that politically homeless people of the center like yourself, there are lots of others, the David Frums of the world, many of them I'm sure are personal friends of yours, do they almost have, and I use this phrase carefully, a moral responsibility to support DeSantis? Well, I think, I, I'd put it this way. I think people have a moral responsibility to oppose Trump. Um, I'm not sure that DeSantis is the person you'd have to support. Presumably, there are going to be a number of people who are running. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of DeSantis, to say the least. I think he's a dangerous person. I don't think he's nearly as dangerous as as Donald Trump, if the, if the choice were between DeSantis and Trump, I would say almost without hesitation that there is a moral responsibility to support uh, DeSantis. But I hope that DeSantis is not the nominee. I hope that another figure rises up, even if it's an imperfect figure, but it's going to be better than 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 either of, of, of them. But again, the great immediate urgent threat to America is Donald Trump and the MAGA movement. But Trumpism and the MAGA movement themselves um, are going to go on even if Trump is defeated. And so the question becomes, how does that movement and the impulses of that movement and the degradations of that movement, um, how are they uh, ultimately contained and, and recede and then and finally, hopefully, are, are, are defeated? That's a long term. That's a long term task. But, you know, every journey begins, uh, a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. we got to take a few steps in the right direction. I think we did in 2020 with the election of Joe Biden. I think we did in 2022, keeping the worst of MAGA from, from winning governorships and, and, uh, and House and Senate uh, offices. And, and we got a lot more steps to, to, uh, to take. But I am more encouraged in that respect than I was uh, when, when Trump was president. Uh